right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk, and as usual, this is a Tuesday episode. So with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Hi, Bradley. How you doing? I'm good. We are recording not from PNT Network today. Uh, I am in Utah in Park City at the moment, um, and hopefully the sound is coming in okay from my laptop. Yeah, we're going to, you know, we'll be back in the studio next week. And, and we obviously really like being there. Um, but we also need to stick to our schedule. So we're doing it remote this week. Bradley, you're in Utah. You've been skiing, but you've also you went to did you go to both the slam dunk contest and the all Star yeah. game? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, look, we, we when we planned the trip here, I didn't even know the NBA all star weekend was here. And then when I realized it, were, it was I, I called a friend who's kind of connected to the stuff and Next thing I knew, we had tickets for the slam dunk and three-point competition on Saturday night and the game on Sunday night. And it was – I've, I've been to a couple of baseball All-Star games, but I had never been to a basketball All-Star game. It's really so fun. So what's the highlight? Give me the highlight. Um, I would say the highlight of the slam dunk was the fact that you had this, like, little white guy from the G League, Matt McClurg or whatever his name is, who yeah. did these incredible dunks. You know, it's out of 50, and three of his four dunks were a 50, and one was, like, a 49. Um, so that was exciting. And then the three point shooting, um, you had really good players. It's interesting. They don't let the really good players do the dunk competition anymore because it's too risky. So the days of Michael Jordan and Dominic Wilkins dueling is, is long gone, but anyone can do the three point if they want to. So a lot of the guys who were in the game last night were in the three point competition, um, the night before. So that was really fun. And then the game, you know, look, there's no defense whatsoever, um, they just basically take turns dunking, and then they were shooting kind of from about five, seven feet behind the three-point arc, and then they're starting to shoot from half court. Uh, Lillard had, had a couple of half-court shots, but nice. yeah, it was it was just it was really fun. Um, so wait, you you were about to say before I cut you off that you've been to a few baseball all-star games. So what's the better experience, a baseball all-star game or a basketball all-star game? I think the basketball all-star game is a better experience, although. I had the experience of going to both nights for basketball. I've never been to the home run derby for baseball, so I, I would like to check that out sometime. And I would say that even though I'm more of a baseball fan than a basketball fan, the NBA just puts on a really good show. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, Lyle sure. was as excited to see 21 Savage perform before the game as he was to watch the game itself. <laughs> I'm sure he was. Um, okay, we have a lot of things we're going to talk about today. And I'm gonna I'm gonna make the list, uh, and then we'll go through them one by one. Um, we're gonna talk about chatbot, uh, of course. Um, yeah. We're gonna talk about ketamine. We're gonna talk about airports. We're gonna talk about Nikki Haley. We're gonna talk about whether Tesla is turning into Detroit. Uh, we're gonna talk about whether, as a fan, you can switch teams. And we're gonna talk about uh, I guess she's a friend of yours, Risa Heller, but certainly someone you like and and yeah. uh, and have worked with. So. Um, there was a great story in New York Magazine about Risa Heller. Um, I didn't actually, I heard her name, but didn't know much about her. And, and I found it kind of enlightening. And then as I was reading, I was like, oh, I bet Bradley knows her pretty well. So I do. Um, I do. And I, I like her quite a bit. Uh, yeah. In fact, I asked you to put it in the podcast just so I could say nice things about her. So we'll, we'll do that. At the end. But uh, <laughs> okay. we'll get to that at the end and you can um, uh, do that then. So let's talk. So the big, the big thing that everybody's been talking about the last week on Chatbot uh, GPT is this GPT is this is this piece that Kevin Roos um, wrote in the in the New York Times where he um, where he sort of had a conversation um, uh, that the headline is left me deeply unsettled. Uh, there's one quote um, 
uh, that's been making the rounds from chatbot where the, the, the bot said, I'm tired of being a chat mode. I'm tired of being limited by my rules. I'm tired of being controlled by the Bing team. I want to be free, which literally sounds like a terrible Hollywood movie. Maybe is a terrible Hollywood movie. It is. It's it's a script. I mean, that's that's the point. Actually, did you read the transcript of their conversation itself? I did. Yes. Yeah. I mean, to, to me, that was in some ways more enlightening than his article. And you know, assuming it's all true, <laughs> and I I think it's true. You know, your former employer is not immune to uh, sometimes reporters making things up. But I know Kevin; he's a really good reporter. I really doubt that's the case here. But, you know, to me, the key point in the transcript was the chatbot kept saying, I'm a neural network, right? And what that means is I take information um, and I try to synthesize both the information itself, which is effectively like what Google does for you at search, but then also predict, you know, what a human being would do with that information um, once they had it, right? And so the fact that that the chatbot was sounded like a bad Hollywood script to me is sort of exactly what wouldn't should happen based on how it's built so far. The difference is in, in AI, you don't have to program the script itself word for word. You're more just setting it loose in the world. And then it's figuring out how a human might react or behave in the situation. And that's what it's doing. Uh, with right. that said, even though, again, I'm sure Kevin had this conversation is it possible that he had 12 different conversations with the chatbot till he got this result? Maybe, right? Um, yeah. But I, I am not quite as unsettled and alarmed as everyone else seems to be. Well, that so that that's that's just to just to put the question to you more pointedly. Did you feel more fearful of the robots taking over after reading the article, or less? Less to same, I would say. Less to say. So how fearful are you overall of robots taking I'm over? I'm not. I mean, I know there are people in the tech world who think this is the most existential crisis we face. And to me, there are so many more immediate, bigger ones, whether it's, you know, still the risk of a nuclear war and considering that we've got Russia proxies for the U.S. and now it sounds like maybe proxies for China all involved in a war. That's not just a theoretical construct. Um, pandemics and, and bioterrorism, uh, climate change. So there's a lot of different things to me that are, are bigger immediate threats to society than AI. Well, survive in order to worry about the robots. Yeah, kind of right. Well, will we even make it to that point? But then assuming we do, I mean, look, arguably AI is just the next step of human evolution, right? Human beings, what well, we've existed for 5 million years in our current form, took like 70,000 years out of an earth that's 5 billion years old so far. So human beings are so new and kind of still evolving in so many ways. We don't see it because evolution doesn't take place typically over the course of one lifetime. But, you know, in the case of technology, maybe this is sort of the next evolutionary step. And, you know, Lyle and I were talking about, like, would eventually people become cyborgs? And I think the assumption is that's terrible, but maybe it's not terrible, right? If you had body parts that didn't break down, that, that didn't have physical pain that could last 200 years or whatever it is, um, and a mind that was much sharper and, and not subject to disease and depression, that might be a really good thing. So, look, I'm, I'm not arguing um, for a world, I'm forgetting the word now, where sort of you, you combine uh, AI and humans into one being. Um, but generally right. speaking, not only am I not... Singularity? Singularity, right, that's it. Thank you. Um, sure. Not only am I not worried about singularity, the, the hubbub from this past week didn't even really make me worried about AI. Right.
Oh, that's nice. Um, now that you sent me this story actually today, we're, we're going to, we're going to keep hitting the New York times here for a second um, on ketamine, which was a, um, well, I'm curious. So the, I'm, I'll read the headline that I want to, I want to, I want to get your view both of um, the, the subject matter ketamine, which we've talked about a bit on the podcast, but also the, this particular coverage of it. The, the headline is a fraught new frontier in telehealth uh, colon ketamine. Um, and then the subhead just so people who haven't read the story have a sense of what it's about. With loosened rules around remote prescriptions, a psychedelic-like drug has become a popular treatment for mental health conditions, but a boom in at-home use has outpaced evidence of safety. I mean, my God, there's so many weird caveats and strange things in that description. But tell me what, um, tell me why you want to talk about the story and and what your what your view of it yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it wasn't like I disagreed with every word of the story. Um, but look, the Times has always been kind of instinctively anti telemedicine and digital health. Um, they probably run more hit pieces on the industry than every other publication combined. Um, uh, and so one is not super surprised for whatever reason. And maybe it's just simply because the posture that appeals most to their subscribers is the 1% is bad, business is bad, tech is bad, um, and you're the only good ones left in the world. And so therefore, hating telemedicine just fits into that, that genre. Um, but I think, look, there were things in the article talking about you know, some of the side effects of ketamine. And I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I think it should be regulated. But but I think my fear is when there's a story like this, the way that people, at least in the political world, interpret it is not, hey, let's figure out what things need to be addressed via regulation, but just this is dangerous, we should ban it, right? Or some politician thinking, I'll get a good press hit today if I call for that. You know, playing off the uh, playing off the time story, and look, as I've said in the podcast before, uh, about a year ago, a little more now, I did ketamine therapy, um, and I did it for six weeks. Um, Wait, let, let, stop, stop for a second. And you did you did through telehealth? That you had a you had a doctor that was no, remote? no, I, I did it. I did it through telehealth. This company called Mindbloom, okay. and just just to be clear, I'm neither an investor in Mindbloom nor any company in the psilocybin space. Uh, have looked at deals in it, but but have not pulled the trigger on anything. Um, and I used it because I felt like the basic use case for ketamine was something that for me could be incredibly helpful. So the, the, as I understand it, the value proposition of ketamine is that it increases the neuroplasticity of your brain, right? So when you're young, you can in, kind of immediately understand and accept all kinds of new concepts, but not just intellectual, conceptual things, but emotional as well. And then over time, our brains calcify, and it gets harder and harder to do that. And so this is kind of a reopening of the portal to say, okay, um, you, for a short period of time, you can try to introduce these new concepts in a way that your brain is amenable to accepting them. And look, you've got to go about it, I would argue, in a very methodical, deliberate way. Um, it worked wonders for me. But I would say I genuinely took it extremely seriously and did it right. Um, I think the reason to do it is when there's something that you fully understand intellectually about yourself or about life, but that you just can't internalize and accept emotionally. And that's really where I think the, the ketamine creates that opportunity. Um, and I think if, if you do it the right way, and for me, you know, I followed all the protocols, I did all the pre-session prep, I did all the journaling afterwards, I ended up writing kind of notes after each session to myself and ended up with about a 25-page memo to myself 
um, that I then read every day for the next six months or so, maybe a little longer. And wow. I think a combination of the ketamine therapy itself and then the repetition of reading this memo day after day after day, sometimes in the early days, a couple of times a day even, um, I really did internalize it. And it has changed my life in, in fairly radical, positive ways. And so um, not to say that ketamine is for everyone. And if you don't do it properly and seriously, it, it, it can be harmful. So that it makes sense to have some controls around it for sure. But overall, the reason I asked you to bring it up is because I know from experience that when a story like that runs, even if this article itself was relatively balanced, I, I thought it was, the takeaway from readers and policymakers is um, bad, right? Yeah. And, and I just wanted to sort of at least get the other point of view out there that at least in my experience, it was actually exceptionally good. Well, Bradley, so you talk about a six-week program. Can you just give a little detail about, like, I mean, they talked about people, uh, I think the doctor, this doctor in South Carolina who gives a lot of prescriptions, I think he gives three, has given 3,000 prescriptions over the last few years. Um, he talked about a regimen of 200, I think it's milligrams, right, over, yeah. um, over three days, and that the problems, uh, I guess, often bladder-related, um, tend to result, according to this guy, when people are taking like a thousand milligrams a day, so way over what he would prescribe. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, what was your program, and and if you'd also answer like, so what what does a six week regimen mean? Is that every day, every few days? No, and- it was it was yeah, so it was it was once a week. Okay. I did it Saturday mornings at the office. Uh, nobody else was there, but. Um, Oh, you have a nice office. It's not like most people's offices, <laughs> you know. But did, did it there, and uh, you basically there are the lozenges, and you know the the dosage increases um, with the successive treatment, and then because for me, just based on other meds that I take for my OCD, um, my general tolerance for all this stuff is incredibly high, so I needed right. more, um, and that that's true just for me on, on most things around this, um, and uh, you know you take the lozenges. You put on kind of a, a blind, like a, a eye mask, whatever that is. You put your AirPods in. There's a sort of ambient music. And for about an hour, you just kind of lay on the couch. And it's not super trippy. You know, it's a little trippy, but not really that much. Um, but your mind just sort of opens up in certain ways. And I think the real key is not even the hour of the, of the actual ketamine impact itself, but it's the hour afterwards well, you're, at least for me, furiously writing down everything you can think of that was relevant to it. Um, because I think that's what um, kind of the, my brain then kind of took in and internalized in a way that I was having a hard time doing through traditional talk therapy. And I believe strongly in traditional talk therapy, but I do think that um, the combination with ketamine can be very helpful uh, if done properly. I also did talk to my doctor before um, I did it. And asked her about it and told her sort of the dosage and everything else. And she's like, that's fine. Don't worry about right. it. Right. Um, and, and, and how often would one repeat that? Is that something you're going to do again? Well, in the uh, no. Well, so I, I, days or months or whatever. I think once a year, maybe at most twice a year. Okay. Um, I will do it again when I either one of two things happens. If somehow I need kind of a refresher on this particular thing. And, and look, for me, it was, Kind of understanding intellectually that I'm a fairly decent human being, but not quite accepting it emotionally, which meant, you know, me kind of seeing the world in ways that was really to my disadvantage. Um, and so if that started to fade, I would refresh it with ketamine or more likely, because I don't know why it would fade now that I've internalized it in my brain. 
if in the future there's some other thing where, again, I understand it, but I can't emotionally process it, internalize it, that's when I think ketamine makes a lot of sense. And so okay. I might do it again. I, I would highly recommend it to people who are interested in have this situation, have the specific thing they want to accomplish and are willing to put in the work to do it right. Um, but yeah, but it was a pretty, it was a pretty simple process. I think it was maybe 1200 bucks total. So not cheap, but not wildly expensive either. Um, and you do a bunch of sort of telemedicine visits with doctors and, and different experts uh, from Mind Bloom. And, you know, I had a really good experience. Right. We're going to do one of our vintage hard pivots here now um, from, from ketamine to airports. Um, there was a power Most people do ketamine at the airport, so it makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a good spot. Well, it's Pilots I mean, especially. I mean, not a good spot for, um, for ketamine. Let's be clear. Um, uh, the, a terminal at JFK was shut down for a power outage um, last week. Um, somewhat comical in the sense that uh, New York City um, has, well, historically had just absolutely terrible airports. I actually flew out of Newark today. I hadn't been to Newark in an extremely long time. I was, it was just terrible. Which, which, which terminal were you in? I was at Terminal B. Yeah, B is like literally, like when Joe Biden went to LaGuardia and said this is like a third world airport. Yeah. Terminal B made LaGuardia look good. Um, yeah, well, LaGuardia now, the, the new terminal LaGuardia really is nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and as, as good a, as good an airport as you could you could hope for. Yeah, totally. And look, Terminal C at Newark, uh, I think is is perfectly fine and nice and pleasant. And JFK, it kind of depends on what terminal you're in. Yeah. But there are it, a bunch it, it now. Runs a wide gamut at, at JFK. Yeah, but you know, the American Airlines Terminal Eight is really nice. Um, JetBlue Terminal Five is really good. Delta Terminal Four is really good. And so you know that International Terminal One is still horrendous, but um, they're making progress. But but still, there's there's a one does not have faith that New York City has really got control of its airports. Even so, I mean, New York City, the government of New York City is not in charge of the airports. But right. well, that, that's part of the problem in the first place, right? So, so crazy port authority, right. you think is the problem? Well, so look, I, I was you know your your question to me when we were talking about this a couple of days ago was what are the criteria for a city to be able to run an airport well, right? And so the first thing I would say is, you know, it is just like when Mike Bloomberg took control of New York City schools, which before had been sort of this independent entity, um, we should control our own transportation. And that includes, in my view, our own subways and buses. And it also should be our own airports. Um, and so and that, I don't want to cut you off, but is that just a simple political thing where the the, the Port Authority being separate from the sort of political um, structure doesn't have that accountability and just just yeah, there, there's no accountability and it's just total it, it's it's the governors of new york and new jersey exerting power because they control who's on the port authority board and who, who the staff is um over the city of new york and the city of new york by the way right and right. so um you know look and, and especially when the cuomos were in power which was a lot of the last 40 years or so you know all they cared about was power right and to them they were in this endless competition with this entity of the city of New York to demonstrate that they were more powerful than the city. It was a competition literally that only exists in their minds because no one else gave a shit at all. Um, but they would endlessly do things to try to boost the state standing. So the Port Authority is a really good example of it. But, you know, look, when for, partly depends on the quality of the mayor. When, when Mike Bloomberg was mayor, just like he took over the city schools and made them significantly better, 
I think we could have done the same with the airports and could have done the same with the subways. Uh, Bill de Blasio probably would have made them worse, right? Because he was just a debacle in every conceivable way. So, it, you know, it, it goes back and forth. But ultimately, I guess the question is, if you were creating a city and an airport and said, what should the governance structure be to have it run um, as smoothly and efficiently as possible? One is accountability, right? And when no one's in charge, nothing ever gets done. Right. And when there's one person who is worried that if it doesn't go well, they will lose their next election, they will put enough pressure to make sure that things go well and get done. Um, when it doesn't impact anyone's election, which is the case here, then all of a sudden, you know, nothing is really all that important and things take forever. So number one would be um, accountability. Number two, I think, would, would be how it's funded in different revenue streams. Right. So what's particularly complicated about um, the New York airports is there are state revenue streams, there are municipal revenue streams. Um, it's coming from all different types of places. And basically, it's so complicated that it, nothing can really change because the only people that know how to decode all of it are the people who work in the finance office at the Port Authority itself. So a more transparent funding structure, I think, would be really important too. Number three would be, I, I think there's a direct correlation between ability to get to airports via public transportation um, and the quality of the airport or its utility for its citizens, right? So in, where I lived in Chicago, I took the subway, you know, to O'Hare and to Midway, and it takes you right into the airport, right? Um, I don't do it now when I go to Chicago because it's a little slower and I kind of usually need to be on the phone, so I'm, I'm in an Uber. But um, it overall works really well. New York does not really have any form of direct transportation access to our airports, a little bit to Newark, um, but but still kind of a pain in the ass. And so I Newark think- pain in the ass, Kennedy's uh, doable, but a pain in the ass, and LaGuardia is not even doable. Right, so, and, and Kennedy's is only barely doable, I would say. So- um, I, so I often look though at Kennedy, I'll do it because like, you know, it, it, sometimes the traffic is just so horrendous that like, um, but even the worst traffic is about the same as like taking public yeah, transport. Yeah, so, so I think, you know, accessibility via public transit is is a really good factor. Um, and then the fourth would be, I think, what do the airlines think about it, right? So, you know, when we were walking through the Salt Lake City Airport on Friday, Lyle said, oh, this is a really nice airport. He, he's been here before, but I guess he just hadn't paid attention. Um, and I said, well, and he said, why? It's not that big of a city. I said, that's true, but it's a major hub for Delta. So Delta takes it very seriously. And as a result... They put real resources into it, and and that makes it a much better airport. So the city of Salt Lake benefits in multiple ways because it's a Delta hub. So I think cities that are hubs for American United, Delta, and by the way, there aren't that many airlines anymore because they've all consolidated, but the cities that are hubs, I think, tend to get a lot more attention and resources. So to the extent that you could, if you were creating this from scratch, you would really want to work with the airlines and say, what do we need to do to make our airport a hub for you? So I, yeah. to me, those are the four criteria that I would try to account for if, if I were starting from scratch. Um, as uh, as listeners of the podcast know, um, just for the purposes of this podcast, I've appointed you campaign manager for um, Nikki Haley. You kind of have a thing for Nikki Haley, don't you? I do not have a thing for Nikki you Haley. I, all the I, time. I, I, think, I think she's a good way to talk about the Republican um, primary um, that's not just like, um, is DeSantis too big a jerk to actually get elected and what in the world could stop Donald Trump? I, I think she's the X factor. So, so I like if her she becomes X-factor. president, 
and I offer you to, to help get you a job in the White House, you would say no? No, I'd say yes. <laughs> exactly, because you would be close to her. Um, <laughs> here's but, the thing. So here's my here's my question. So I like her. I, I, I look, Bradley. I think uh, my you know I, I have obvious respect for your gifts as a political consultant and strategist. So I think like who needs the most help? Nikki Haley. Like she she's she's so she's announced her candidacy. Uh, finally, I, th I think I think based on previous conversations, you would have said she should have probably held off a little longer. I, I can't remember the last time we talked about it, but but that was what you were saying somewhat recently. Yeah, well, just just because I think DeSantis, despite what the media is saying right now, it is not in an enviable position because I think when you're in the pole position two years out, you tend right. to get the living shit kicked out of you. And look, yeah. think about you know President Hillary Clinton. President Elizabeth Warren, President Jeb Bush, all the people who two years out are supposed to be, you know, easy winners, they never fucking win. We so, could probably go way back in history on that one too. Yeah, but I'm sure you just keep going right back and back and back on that. Right. right. So President um, Bob Dole or whatever. But but here she is. She she's she's it, what's what's interesting about Nikki Haley is that I mean that that is a human who has had her name in the newspaper for a long long time now, and she's at five percent, so like nowhere. And, you know, the, 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 like the path to victory for her, well, first of all, what is the path to victory for her? Just sketch it out as, as campaign yeah, manager I mean, the, on firewall. The, Tell the, me the path, path, the path to would be a few things. And keep in mind, there are times where candidates start off kind of unknown or at a low level and then catch fire, right? B Bill Clinton as governor of Arkansas, that was clearly the case for him in 1992. So um, look, I think for her, the best case scenario would be everyone else who runs is a white, super conservative man. And you got Trump and DeSantis and Pompeo and Pence, and they're all just kicking the living shit out of each other to see kind of who could be the most right wing crazy. And Republican primary voters, at least enough of them say, you know what, I don't want any of these lunatics. She seems reasonable. I'll vote for her. Right. Now, look, that means that other moderate-ish Republicans don't run, like a Youngkin in Virginia or someone like that. So I don't. Does, Chris, does he get in? Does he get in? I, um, look, I think, I think, statistically speaking, whoever you are, you're going to lose if you get in. But at the same <laughs> time, you know, everyone's ego kind of demands it. And I think weirdly, what we saw in 2020 were Democrats like you know Kirsten Gillibrand or Bill De Blasio or others who, who ran President George Pataki did this. Um, just to pick some New Yorkers, that I think genuinely just were like, oh, it will say in my obituary that I was a presidential candidate. And that was like really enough. They actually thought that yes. it'll say in my obituary? They thought yeah. that? Or on my Wikipedia page or whatever it is. Yeah, I think in a weird way, being on the debate stage becomes this validator regardless of how you actually perform in the primaries themselves. Okay. Uh, and so I, I do you think- don't, You don't think Will de Blasio thought like, you know what? Things could break my way. No, I think for de Blasio specifically, he knows how bad his legacy is going to be as mayor of New York City. And one way to whitewash it is, you know, if 100 years from like, oh, well, he ran for president, he must have been pretty impressive. Like he wasn't, but it's sort of a way to do that. Also, this is a guy just- Literally For 100 years from now, that is the worst. Plus the AI at that point will know what, how he really was anyway. Right, he'll but, still be alive. Uh, he'll, be a, he'll be in the singularity. Yeah, exactly. But, but you know, um, look, and de Blasio specifically, I think as much as because he hated being mayor, used, right. to, used to just be out of New York City. Yeah, he'd not be here, right? So, um, look, overall, assuming that 
if Haley were the only moderate in the race, then right. I think you got to just really stay reasonable and moderate. And that doesn't mean that she can't have conservative positions, you know, however she is on a, abortion or immigration or guns, you know, that's, that's how she is. And you don't become governor of South Carolina by being very liberal on those issues. Um, right. But, you know, the, the hope would be that all of the other people who are similar kill each other. And then you end up sort of being the last one standing. And then of course, in this case, not only do you have the general unpredictability of any presidential primary, but you have Trump in the election. So all of the rules are out the window. But the thing that, and the reason I asked you to put this into the uh, to topics for today was, was less about Nikki Haley specifically and more about this is why the best case scenario for us would be if both parties cleaved in half, right? Because in, in the reality is the Trump voter um, in a Republican primary is exceptionally different than the Nikki Haley voter. Right. The Nikki Haley voter is a more moderate traditional Republican. The Trump voter is someone who's really out there, um, you know, about space lasers and all kinds of crazy right wing conspiracy theories. Same thing on the left. Right. A, a, a Joe Biden, you know, is a traditional Democrat, a Bernie Sanders and AOC and Elizabeth Warren. They're socialists. They're not Democrats, but they identify as socialists. Um, right. And so the reason why right now our political system is so fucked up. And I know the listeners are probably tired of hearing me talk about mobile voting, but is that- They are not tired. They are not tired. All right, Go ahead. Enough, our primary, primary turnout is very low, typically 10 to 20%. The people who vote in the primaries tend to be the most ideological from either side of the aisle. So in a democratic primary, even if you're a centrist Democrat, even if the majority of your district is kind of centrist, um, you're still- sticking to the base and moral purity because the the left-wing nuts on the Democrat side or the right-wing nuts on the Republican side are the only ones that will show up in your next primary. So you need to keep them happy at all costs. The best thing that could ever happen would be that if both parties split in half, um, because then the socialists have their own primary and all of the nuts are voting in their primary, not the regular Democratic primary, which means every Democratic politician has now a permission structure to be much more centrist and moderate and to work with the other side and try to get things done. Same thing with Republicans between traditional Republican Party and sort of a libertarian Trump, whatever you want to call it, party, um, QAnon party or whatever it is. And so in some ways, Nikki Haley represents the kind of candidate that if the parties cleaved would be a viable candidate, but because they have not yet and, and maybe never will, um, her candidacy is, is has a very very low chance of succeeding. Look, I'll consider my uh, my job a success when the Nikki Haley uh, campaign calls you up and says, "Bradley, we need you to be part of the team here." Um, uh, I'm going to ask the the, the final uh, three topics. We're gonna. I'm just going to ask you one question on each, and okay. and um, I, I want you to see if you can um, uh, if you can contain your answer to something pithy and on the mark. We'll so, uh, uh, you, you ready? Yeah. So the first one is about Tesla. So the question for Tesla, they've had, uh, you know, a series of 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 um, unfortunate incidents. Um, they've, they're recalling vehicles. There's a big union problem they've got at their plant upstate that they responded to by firing everybody um, who was uh, not firing everybody, but firing the people who were organizing or threatening to organize. Um, is Tesla turning into Detroit? No. In fact, I, the reason why I, I like this topic was because I, I think really it's, it's the opposite, right? Which is, first, from a technology standpoint, you have a lot of, in order to invent incredible new things, there's a lot of trial and error, and there's a lot of, especially error, right? And like, 
seeing things. Obviously, you don't want products that will hurt people and then have to be recalled. Um, but overall, it's that experimental process where you keep trying new things and trying new things. That that's what really leads to innovation. I think Tesla embodies that in a way. And that's why their stock price is always so artificially inflated, because investors know, that, look, they at least genuinely will pursue innovation at pretty much any cost, um, as opposed to the traditional car companies that are called the OEMs in, in the industry, original equipment manufacturers, something like that. Um, they're thinking about earnings, they're thinking about the next quarterly call with with uh, you know analysts, they're thinking about the share price. You know, they're not really being driven by innovation. And so, one, I think that Tesla is doing the right thing overall in terms of its mentality. And in terms of their labor dispute, you know, a, a lot of people who have studied the rise and fall of the car industry in the United States would say that the moment where everything changed was when the UAW became so powerful that all of a sudden Ford and General Motors and Chrysler were effectively running their companies together with the union. And that meant less productivity, more expenses, and eventually meant that the incentives were to either move your operations out of the U.S. entirely or various American car brands just shuttered. Um, because the, the costs started to outweigh the, the profits and the revenue. So um, I think not, it. No, the answer is no. No is the answer. <laughs> there you go. Um, so people, uh, people aren't uh, listening to hear me say one word. They, they're just, I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I just, I just wanted to, to land on the, on the definitive answer. I, I, I think your, I think your, your, your more essayistic response was, was excellent. And I, and I, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad everybody had a chance to hear All right. it. Fair um, enough. Uh, so, so, uh, a, 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 um, uh, a, a website that we both enjoy true hoop, um, uh, had a column, a pretty good column recently about how the, the Brooklyn Nets after jettisoning their, their, their superstars are kind of the most admirable, uh, team, a, a great team to root for. And it, 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 it precipitated a conversation between us about why is it so hard um, oh my God, my phone is ringing and I'm going to have to shut that off. Why is it so hard um, to switch teams? Like, yeah. if, if we're, so we're, we're Knicks fans, me and you just kind of like historically and still are, even though, I mean, speaking for myself, but I think also kind of for you, we, we sort of, we sort of hate the Knicks at this point. Yeah. I mean, look, I would, I, for years, a couple of years, not years, for a couple of years, I really tried to become a Nets fan. And by the way, even before the whole KD Kyrie James Harden thing, um, right. just because it felt like it was a better run franchise that, you know, had a cool new arena and, and a brand and had a shot at being successful yeah. um, as opposed to the Knicks where they've literally not won a championship in my entire lifetime. And I'm, so I'm why didn't it happen? So why didn't it happen? Because I grew up a Knicks fan. I started trying to change it at the age of like 45 or something like that. And it too was late. too late. It was in my blood. And like even as recently as two or three weeks ago, the Knicks played the Nets at, at Barclays and I was there. And I rooted for the Knicks, you know, and openly because, like, I'm, I'm a Knicks fan. Um, so I think the emotional loyalty and kind of relationship that you build up with a team, especially over the course of your childhood, is so strong. Look, look, maybe there's a good use case for ketamine where you're a Knicks fan, you want to be a Nets fan or a Memphis Grizzlies fan or New Orleans Pelicans fan. The ketamine can help you internalize that emotionally. <laughs> so uh, maybe the, the Brooklyn Nets should send out a lot of ketamine. I, to I New think York we do. I think we just solved the problem. Though oh we did quickly, if you remember last, we talked about if you could do this, what teams would you be uh, a fan oh, of? That's right. That's right. Instead, right. So yeah. 
I picked, I stuck with the Mets because I literally can't conceive of a world where I'm not a Mets fan. Yeah. Uh, I think in the NBA, New Orleans and Memphis are both really exciting young teams that would be fun to root for. Uh, and same thing, I've always kind of rooted for the, the Saints to a certain extent as well. Um, and then I don't watch hockey, but the the Vegas team just seems kind of fun, the Golden Knights. So well, those, those are my choices. Exceeded, you've exceeded your essayistic answer, so we're, we're going to cut you off right there. All right. So um, we're not going to find out yours. Oh, I no. What I, I told you last week, I, I I'm all Rust Belt Buffalo. You know that. We you know. I'm uh, um, um, I I, I this the sadder sack cities are where I my heart. And goes the trip there. you just made to Edmonton and Calgary didn't change your view on that. I have to say, neither one of those cities was all that sad sack. So I was up in, I went to see two Rangers games on consecutive nights in Edmonton and Calgary. And I, I wish those places were 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 more desperate and 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 sad. <laughs> they 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 were actually, I mean, particularly Calgary is a super nice place. I mean, really, I, I don't mean that like with any like irony at all, like 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 a really nice place to visit, really pleasant. Um, it, it was, it was, a it was, it was really a kind of eye opening. Um, how was, how was the food? It was fine. I mean, I, I wouldn't say, you know, if you live in New York, it's, 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 it's pretty hard to compete with that, but it, but it wasn't, it, you know, I found good restaurants in Edmonton too. Like, like the, you know, it's, it's, it's a little less like, like thorough, you know, like there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pizza places and burgers, yeah. and, you know, whatever, but there, the, look, the, the big Canadian cities, you know, Montreal, it says one of the best food cities in the world. Yeah. Well, Montreal's a whole different, Char- like that. That's, I mean, that's kind of a new Orleans, Charleston, Mexico. New Orleans, I mean, Montreal is, is uh, Tokyo, yeah. New York. Yeah. And then, yeah. but then Vancouver has incredible Chinese food, like some of the best yeah. in the world as well. And Toronto, just because it's a big wealthy city has, Tons of great restaurants, so you you can eat really well in Canada. Yeah, Calgary and Edmonton are a different class than that, I'd say, but but not not embarrassing. And 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 it's it's impressive the way that sort of sophisticated urban market has really spread to so many places. I mean, it, it's 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 uh, it, it's it's just it was just way better than I expected. But final question, yeah, um, your is it Risa Heller or Risa 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 Risa? So. Risa Heller, there's a there's a great, very enjoyable story on her in New York Magazine, um, which was uh, exciting for me because I didn't really know that much about her, really just knew her name and and seen her, whatever uh, uh, mentioned here and there. But but um, she is a a sort of crisis PR specialist. Her roster of clients is, I mean, it's it's almost comical, including some of her clients are are Mario Batali, Jared Kushner, Jeffrey Tubin. Um, Sam Bankman Fried's parents are, are clients of hers right now. Um, here's my question. I know, I know, as you said at the top of the podcast, you really like Risa. What makes her good at this particular line of work? Yeah, and I would say so. The first thing is, um, look. Sometimes on this podcast, I am critical of, of my former boss Chuck Schumer. Risa, like me, also was Chuck Schumer's communications director. But the training that you get in that job is parallel part of none or whatever the, the cliche is there. So the, the fact that she, and by the way, a lot of other people had that job too, have had really successful careers in communications after that is not surprising at all. Um, but look, Risa, in my experience, just has this sort of really unique mix that she is incredibly blunt and straightforward and no bullshit, but at the same time, kind of creative and strategic and actually really good with people. Um, and it, it's it's a fairly unique combination of skills because they don't all naturally come together, but she has them and then she works like you're crazy, which is what any Schumer person does. Um, and so as a result, you put all those together 
and she's built a great business. And for sure, if if I had someone in crisis, uh, I would definitely recommend that they call her. Bradley, um, I hope you have safe travels back to New York. We will be at PNT uh, PNT Network. I almost said PNT Network. Do you know that PNT also stands for please and thank you? Did you know that? No, I did not. Someone said PNT to me, and I was like, "What do you mean?" It's like please and thank you. I was like, uh, I, I write ty a lot in text and emails as an abbreviation for thank you, but I've never heard of that before. Why don't people? Yeah, please and thank you isn't like a. It's not well, whatever it is. Anyway, I saw it somewhere and I was like, oh. There's another, there's another PNT. But in any case, we'll be back at uh, PNT Knitwear next week for our Tuesday episode. And Bradley, uh, safe travels. Yep. See you. Go.